Hi, welcome to the Print Spaces regular podcast, Sell Out, which is about how you make a self-sustaining career as an artist. There are many ways of doing this these days, and we are talking to people who have done this through every method and a combination of methods so you can understand what is right for you. This is episode five, but I've now recorded 10 of these, which we'll be releasing all before Christmas. Having spoken at length to 10 successful artists who have driven their own career success, I can now start to see what they all have in common, which is hard work, resilience, passion and desire to be a full-time artist, but also none of them are scared to have a strategy or a plan and they're not afraid to talk about it. I think this is inspiring because so many artists are primed to think that thinking commercially will in some way taint the purity of their creativity and what I've learned so far is that this just isn't true. I started this podcast because I felt there's a lot of artists who are in the dark about how to think commercially and about how to make their first commercial steps. So if you like this, I would really appreciate a review and a share. And please subscribe because you'll be the first to hear about the great episodes we have coming up. You have to stand for something as well. And in the same way that you will buy an iPhone instead of a Samsung for whatever reason, you will buy a VW instead of a BMW for whatever reason. We make decisions about the brands that we interact with. You watch Channel 4 as opposed to ITV for whatever reason. All of these things are driven by brand connection and brand values and the things that you want like-minded brands to be in your life. And I think as an artist, same way that you do with music, same way that people are turning around and go, oh, I can't wait for the new Tarantino movie. Whatever it is, I know it's going to be good. And I think with artists, you have to be in that position where you stand for something or you mean something to people. The great thing about all the great artists that we could ever name, you could put all of their work in a room for a thousand other pieces of work by other people and you'd be at a spot which one those people did. And that's a great discipline to be in or to have when you're creating work. How do I stand out? How do I mean something to people? How do I create a brand connection or an emotional connection to my customers or to other people? That's Dave Buonagridi. Dave is a rare breed of person. He co-founded not one, but two legendary London-based ad agencies and then realized his true calling in life was to be an artist and he's made a successful career out of that too. I first learned of his work through Jealous Gallery in London and I just knew I had to speak to him. I think it's so rare to find somebody with so much cross-domain knowledge in advertising and art. I learned so much from his talk so please listen and enjoy and subscribe and share this podcast as we have many more great shows launching in the next few weeks. Also, follow me on Twitter at It Might Just Work, that's my handle, or search my name, Stuart Wapplington, to get random thoughts on how to develop your art sales career. On with the show. Welcome, Dave, to the podcast, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I just wanted to start by picking up on some of your early career. You had an amazing career in advertising before becoming an artist. You founded both St. Luke's and Kamarama, which are legendary in their own ways as agencies in the UK. For people that don't know St. Luke's, it was a really unique idea, which was the first cooperative ad agency mm-hmm. where no one was in charge. And I remember seeing this documentary about it, which I've just watched again this morning, thanks to you. And it was a fascinating idea ahead of its time. And now certain companies in Silicon Valley picking up some of the ideas behind that. Do you want to tell me a bit about how St. Luke's came about and actually what it, what was the idea behind it? Yeah, it stems back from, I think probably going back to my parents who were both immigrants. My dad's Italian, my mum's Danish. They came over in the late 50s, 60s. And I think when you've got that immigrant thing, you know that you have to do something a little bit different to survive. And so when I went into advertising is the most traditional old fashioned white middle-class male business you can ever imagine bar politics probably it's still run exactly the same way as it's always been run the agencies companies are all named after the three or four white men that own there's been a little bit of a shift more recently with people setting up interesting names interesting the name sometimes dictates what how big a wanker you are basically if you name it after yourself you're a twat when you've got a name like bonaguidi and the bloke i was working with was called ramchandani he's indian there was also a girl called zamboni when we, so we were all working together, there was no way that we were going to name the business we had after f- three, let alone five of the people who were in management at the time. And so I'd worked in pretty traditional ad agencies all my career. I'd got a sniff of working in a couple of very good startups, one called Hal Henry back in the, the late 80s that ended up becoming Agency of the Decade, which was just an amazing agency that basically broke the mould of the way that agencies could work with clients and the amount of work and the kind of work they could do. And so 
I, got, I was hugely influenced by that. And then I worked in big agencies, multinationals. And then when I had a chance to set up our own one, it was just a, it was just one of those perfect storm scenarios. So I was working with this guy, Narish. We were both working at an agency called Chiat Day, which is an American agency. We found out after about two years of working together where we'd effectively started to rebuild what was a very dysfunctional agency office in London. They were huge in LA, New York and Toronto, I think, but they had no nothing else in Europe. And so they never came over to visit us. They just left us alone and we just started to build it, dismantle it, take it all apart and try and build something that was a little bit more weatherproofed for the kind of modern era. And having had lots of influence from places like Hal Henry, which are pretty forward thinking agencies, we just took a lot of our experience and learning and applied it to somebody else's agency effectively. And then we found out one evening, I think it was a Sunday night, we found out that they'd been sold worldwide and effectively we were going to lose our job. So we had a couple of options, which was the five people who were the management, six people who were the management team could break it all, break up completely and two or three of us would run off and get jobs elsewhere or set up another agency. Or six of us could go and set up another agency or we could take some clients or some people. And we made this decision, actually. It was a guy called David Abraham, who was the, who's now got his own agency. He's great, really clever guy. Had basically said, listen, why don't we, if we, doesn't make any sense to make this deal work with TBWA, who had basically acquired us. Everybody loses their jobs. All the clients get, they have to break up and pitch and it's very disruptive. And we made an agreement. Why don't we fucking leave the deal and go and do our own thing? take all the staff, all the clients. And it was massively exciting. Chiat Day got hugely annoyed because they were perceived as the pirates. The London office was out pirating the main pirate ship and they didn't like it. But eventually we put the deal to the people, Omnicom, who bought us and they said, seems like a good idea. You can basically buy yourself out of the deal. And we found an old empty toffee factory in Houston that was, we got a 10 year deal and it was free for two years. And we just moved the whole lot, agents, all the people, all the staff, all the equipment in there. And it was massively exciting. But the minute you do something like that, you have to change the dynamic of it. You have to come up with something new. And so we didn't name it after the five or six people because all our names were stupid. I was tasked with finding the name for it. And at the time, we loved working with clients who were a bit broken. And they'd come to us and we had a history of fixing them and then turning them around. So brand turnaround was a big thing. And it was something that we were starting to stand for in a way. And I think I discovered that the patron saint of doctors and artists was a guy called St. Luke. And so we just went, we fixed things with creativity and it just made sense. So we named it St. Luke's. Everyone thought we were a bunch of moonies and idiots and uh, laughed at us. But we had a very, it was an interesting, I think you called it an exercise and an experiment. And I think it was very interesting to do it. I was 28, 29 at the time. So I didn't know shit from sugar. You just come up with these things and you think I would rather try something and make it different than do what everybody else is doing and like I said there were a whole load of things that forced us to do it the way we did and I'm glad we did it it was a fascinating thing to do I learned a huge amount about people I learned a huge amount about myself and the career I was in and the business I was in and I think it was just I'm glad somebody did it and I'm glad in a way if somebody did it, I'm glad we did it. What was it like working there? Because and we'll put the link in the in the show notes documentary if anyone wants to watch it. But it was somewhere where you could decide your own job, decide your own salary. It was a lot of that. A lot of that was was sugar talk. There were still very defined roles. Me and Narish were the creative directors. We had final say on the work. Andy Law was still the or the chairman. David Abraham was the CEO. John Grant was head of planning. They would have they would make decisions that were still exactly the same as they were when we were a traditional agency. I think there was a lot of um, bullshit just to try and make it sound a little bit sexier. To to be quite honest, the main structural change was everyone was an equal shareholder. So whether you were Rose the cleaner, Roddy the handyman, my old man used to work there as a shit. He had the, he ran the kitchen then. We all had the same shares and but we all paid different salaries because we had different jobs and different job responsibilities. There was a thing called the Quest, which was a sort of almost like the company barometer for the kind of decisions that we'd make about benefits for people. I remember when we set it up, we said, we have to have the best maternity, paternity, healthcare policies. We have to be bigger and better than everybody else. And it's pretty easy because at the time, advertising was pretty corrupt in every way. They weren't very nice people. It was run by white middle class. The business is run and governed by white middle-class men who tend to be the most appalling people historically ever. And so there were lots of things that we could do overnight 
that would challenge and make it better for everybody else. One of the issues that I think we found was that suddenly when you open up the doors to decision-making and conversation to everybody, it becomes a bit of a free-for-all and you end up with this kind of animal farm mentality where everyone thinks they have a right to, to steam in and get involved. And I think the thing that I really took from it was it's great to rewrite the rules, but be, do it with caution because there were a whole load of things that we rubbed out immediately, old archaic formulas and systems that were just completely pointless. But when you try and when you flip it completely, you discover a whole bunch of things that you have no experience about how to handle and how to handle people who jump out of their boxes and start screaming and yelling and they're, they're on a placement and they think they're the MD because you've said it in a meeting. And it's very, it became quite difficult because you'd say these big things and then you'd have to constantly have the asterisks and the legals of it, which was, now actually when we said you can pay yourself what you think you're worth, didn't have to work like that. I mean, you, you were still paid what you should have been paid anywhere else. But so there was, a, there was a, quite a lot of bullshit involved. But it was, in all intents and purposes, it was a much more free, a much more liberating experience. My, my thing and Narish's thing from the two creative sides was we wanted to create something that was different innovative would break all of the old historical molds but also just be a great place to work for a client and for staff because agencies are you know, big corporations as we now know are not nice places to work and I wanted to feel safe and I wanted to feel inspired and I wanted to feel relaxed so that I could do the one thing that I was employed to do which was to come up with ideas for other people and we wanted our clients to look at us and think they're an inspiring bunch and we should pay them fairly and all that kind of, I mean we did stuff like when we had a budget and we underspent, we'd give that money back to the client. No aid, no business does that, let alone an ad agency. Ad agencies would be, how do we get as much money for doing as little as possible out of it? And so there were lots of things that were, there was a lot of morality, which I think is the one thing that I, if morality crept into the business in any way at all, that would be a really nice legacy to be part of. And I think the business, all business now is becoming much more, female is the wrong word, but much more missionary rather than mercenary. And there are values and integrities that we didn't have in the business, in any business 30 years ago, that now completely commonplace. And that's how people make decisions about who they want to work with. I completely agree with that. And how do you see the parallels between commercial creativity with advertising and art? Because I think that sometimes when those, when advertising is really done right, it has the power to really change things. I'm thinking of maybe Nike stuff with Colin Copernic and I was, uh, cause I was thinking about this in preparation for this podcast. I was remembering a great Heineken ad from a Scottish working man's club where these, this guy and his dad are playing pool and it's this smoky like working men's club. And, and he's, and his dad's about to take the shot and he says, by the way, dad, I'm gay. And, oh, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. and he says, oh, no worries, son. It's the nineties after all. Yeah, and yeah. things like that, which were like quite leading things at the time and pushing boundaries and stuff. So I think when advertising is done, it is a, it's incredible art form. It, do, do you see a lot of parallels with what you're doing now in terms of the art? And that's why I got into it. I, I'm not sure. I probably not sure I chose it. I think I fell into it. I was really into graphics and drawing and painting when I was a kid. It was all triggered by my Italian grandmother giving me an old book, which I've still got, I've got it in here actually, which was a book of, was that one of these encyclopedias of the Second World War? And one of the, one of the volumes was all about propaganda. And I loved looking at the images and seeing these three word headlines about recruitment or don't talk and it was pretty powerful stuff because if you did something wrong in those days it was pretty catastrophic and I just loved the way that they could caricature, caricature world leaders and there was something about the emotion of when you saw a poster with Hitler or Churchill or Mussolini or the Japanese soldier fighting the American there was something very powerful about that and so I loved it and I got into advertising by fluke really I went to art school and did graphics and then fell into advertising but there was something really interesting about the power of language, about the power of images and the power of also getting you to react in some way, because that's all they want in advertising is you to react and it was either buy something or stop doing something or start doing something. So they were pretty simple. Then there became this thing as advertising became more powerful and there were lots, it was much more competitive and the quality of people coming into the business to try and get you to make those reactions was much more scientific. It became about 
just trying to get a reaction out of people. How do you remember that piece of thing that you've just seen or that you've just watched on TV or you've just driven past on the motorway, you've heard on the radio? And so that meant you had to try a bit harder. And I think the examples you use, like Heineken, for beer, it's a lifestyle brand. They couldn't even talk about the beer because it was illegal. So you'd have to kind of set up this universe where you could talk about other things. Nike is not a brand, it's a political movement. It's a, the things that they would talk about, the three words, the most powerful and the most evocative end line of all time. And there's something about that, that power that I used to love. I think now the business has become a little bit more formulaic. I think we are much more reliant on data and that kind of shoot from the hip creativity has all been been boiled away from what the business needs and what the business was good at. And I think now, I think in the old days, in the 80s and the 90s, you'd strive to create an eight or a nine out of 10. Now, I think everybody's quite happy with a three out of 10 is perfectly good enough. And that's why the word is sort of dog shit. And nobody seems to want to push hard. And I mean, maybe there are people pushing hard, it's a bit unfair. But uh, I think it requires clients who are brave and who see their brand as a lighthouse brand that's going to change things and make things better and make things interesting. And there aren't an awful lot of brands like that at the minute. And as a result, the chain of suppliers become a little bit less interested and a little bit more fearful of losing the account and losing money rather than doing something that's going to change the world. Totally. And I would apply that to the art world as well. And I think the reason I got excited about becoming an artist, and it was, again, a bit of a fluke, was just... Uh, so often art can be quite passive. It's like one of those things that you look at and you stroke your chin and you contemplate it. Whereas I've come from that world where Jamie Reed was making album covers for the Pistols and it was all bright and loud and sometimes offensive and would do stuff that would kick you up the arse a little bit. And in a way, that's all of that propaganda, all of that 80s album covers, 70s album covers, the graphic nature of those images that had to try and capture or evoke a kind of a moment with just one picture and three words, I just try and apply that to art in the same way. And it's and it's fun for me, but it's also because it's familiar. So is it one thing I, uh, because I worked in advertising production for a while, and one thing looking at that documentary again that, that reminded me about something was where you guys would go in with an idea and the client would just say no, and you thought it was the best idea ever. Well, yeah. And it was probably the thing that you were proudest of. It always was the thing that they pushed back against. And yeah. is it refreshing now to be on the art side where you don't really have that kind of restriction? It's amazing. It's amazing. But I tell you what, I was just talking to somebody earlier about it. When I worked in advertising, one of the things that drove me mad, and I think it was a turning point for me, was that when I was at Kamarama and just the amount of wastage and everything about creativity, ideas, time, money. It was just appalling. And I remember thinking, look, we're not even that, we're not stupid. We've got some good people here. We sit down with a client, we agree a brief, and then we go off and come up with ideas that should be on that brief. And then why is that work not going through first time? We did a bit of analysis, and this is going to sound really boring, but I was, it was driving me mad. And I said, look, can we just do a bit of analysis and try and find out how much work goes through first time, first presentation? And it was 0.03% of the work we did. And we were doing like wow. 1,000 ads a year. 0.03 of the work goes through first time. So you'd end up having to have six meetings to get the work done. And it was because a lot of the time, there are a whole bunch of agendas. The minute you get six people in a room with a moleskin pad each and a pen, the agendas are all there. So the client wants something that's going to help him get his summer bonus and get his Christmas bonus. The agency creative wants to do something that's going to win them an award. The MD wants to get a piece of work or the managing director or the uh, head, of our, uh, head of client services wants to do a piece of work that's not going to fuck the client off that he leaves, but is also going to keep the creatives happy. So you, that's why Muzak is created. Somebody yeah. likes rock. Somebody wants classical. We're in a hotel where nobody. We don't. We can't. We're not in a rock hotel. We're not in a class. Why don't we just create music? This <laughs> horrible vanilla bullshit that everybody can not hate. That's the problem. And it's yeah. not about liking or loving anymore. The odds are too finely stacked against you. I remember working with, with a guy called Jay Chiat, who was the founder of Chiat Day, and he was a big collector of Damien Hirst very early on. And I remember talking to him about one of the pieces he bought, and I think he bought the piece which was a cow's head that was rotting and there were a whole load of flies that would chew on it. And then he had one of those big electrical zappers 
and it was just life the cycle of life or whatever it's called something like yeah. that yeah i absolutely love that piece and i love that kind of and i was so surprised at him and he just said no because dave my day job i have to do one piece of work that a million people love and he mm. said for my collecting work i buy one thing that only one person in the world would love how many if you showed that art to anybody to a thousand people 999 of them would reject it but he said i'll buy it and i love that thing of flipping it using all of that science and information and data mining and all of the insights that we have in creativity that we apply to making hopefully the right decision when you're your own client, fucking hell, you do whatever you like. I think when I worked at Karmarama the last year, we would we worked out that we would do a hundred ads, a hundred ideas to get one. Now, yeah. if you can imagine presenting a hundred ideas to fifty people who are all part of the decision making process, the kind of work that's going to get through a hundred people or fifty people is going to be the most vanilla you can ever imagine. And so that idea of I'm going to try and do I'm I, as a creative, I want to do something that's going to challenge and be brilliant and i don't give a fuck about awards i've never entered them but it was like i want to do something that makes me feel good or is it it's gonna challenge the status quo and make it better no one's interested no one gives a fuck about that all they want to do is just get something that's quick on budget and sort of ticks five of the eight but five of the 55 boxes that need ticking and everybody can agree is the least offensive bit of work and as a result you just end up with the bullshit we've got whereas wasting 99 ideas and the time it takes to come up and the stress it takes to come up with those ideas in order to make the shittest idea that you've then got to spend the next year making. And by the time you've finished it, all you want to do is hang yourself. And you've been there. You would have been in production. You would have been there. And it's just yeah, I've seen it. appalling. Yeah. appalling. Yeah. And, you, and human nature dictates that you go, it's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. We're going to look back. And then you look at it when you present it to the rest of the agency and you go, fuck it now. What am I doing? And I think that's the turning point for me was when I just realised the odds weren't going to get any better. The work wasn't going to get any better. And I needed to do something that could help me do some of the things that I really still love doing, which is coming up with ideas and then making them happen and then engage with an audience. And so what I do as an art artist is not really that different from what I did when I was working in advertising, but it's just there's one client, me. Mm. I get to say, what do you reckon? Should we do it? And then I do it. So... And do you is there any kind of feedback that you take into account as an artist yeah i do i work i try and work very closely with the galleries that i sell through i still like having feedback and i've had i've come up with probably twenty thousand ideas in advertising of which i've probably made about a thousand so i've had plenty of knockbacks i've been married i'm divorced i've got plenty of scars and broken bones that I've recovered from. So I don't cry anymore when people don't like my work. It really doesn't bother me. I just respond, listen to it. If I think they're assholes, I'll ignore them. And if I think they're right, I'll do something about it. And I really enjoy that process. I love working with galleries and talking about shows that I want to do with them and talk about new editions of work that I'm doing. I love doing that. I know a lot of people find that quite uncomfortable. I suppose it helps that you've, I've got the experience I've got. And I'm as old as I'm, I'm 58. So I'm like, I'm not, if I was 30, I'd probably struggle with it. If I was in my 20s, probably even more because you're much more precious. But I've also got a big dollop of discipline in what my brand, this is going to sound really wanky, but what I call my brand universe, what my colours are, what my vibe is, what my language is, what my font is. All of that stuff is something that was second nature to me when I was working on Ikea or Costa Coffee or whatever it might be. So applying that to myself is a good discipline to have so that when i come up with a new idea i can go that's the kind of stuff i do this isn't the kind of stuff i don't do it work out how if you really like it work out a way of retrofitting and make if you put pink in it it might be enough and so i still apply that kind of logic to it and that really helps yeah and that was something that was really interesting to me to ask you that sort of knowledge you have of that kind of consistency of brands is that something really important for an artist Personally, I think it is. And hopefully there's going to be a lot of different artists who are going to look at this and 
or listen to this and will think will disagree. I think it, it can be predetermined by your age, the kind of work that you like doing, your experience, your personality. I'm very commercial. I have no shame in being commercial. I know I've got to make money because my kids go to nice schools and I've got to pay off my ex-wife. So I have a kind of, I'm disciplined enough to know that I have to run it like a business. I come in every day at 8.30. I go home every night at 8.30. I do what I've got to do and I make a shit ton of stuff that I try and sell. I think a lot of people have got elements of shame about what they do and if I make money or is there's a huge contradiction at the heart of it which is I'd say being an artist is the second best job in the world because the first being being a model where you don't even have to fucking try you literally turn up and get your bum out male or female and somebody pays you quite a lot of money to put their clothes on and then you can do whatever you like it's real zero effort as an artist to to be able to sell something that you love doing that you find really easy to people who like it so much they will give you their money. It's just an, ama- it's an amazing feeling. I think in this country, we're slightly ashamed of making money, whereas in the States, we don't have a problem with it at all. And so a big part of it is coming to grips with whether you see this thing as a side hustle, and it's that's the bit that you do because you love doing it, but you don't mind not making any money because you're making loads of money being an arms dealer, drug dealer, or uh, working in a bank or working in advertising. I would say that you're kidding yourself. And one of the things I learned in the experience that I've had over the last few years, removing all toxins from my life is the most liberating thing you can do. And the minute you release yourself from all that bullshit and that stress and pain, you find yourself swimming in much more calm waters and it is a beautiful thing and making money and making good money out of doing something that you love doing there is no better feeling and so i would absolutely encourage it however like i said i'm 58 and i've got things that i need to pay for so i don't mind being commercial there are plenty of other artists out there who are quite happy to paint dead birds heads in with oil paint and all that kind of stuff and know full well that it's not commercial and maybe they play a different game. They play the long game. If you're in your 30s, you can maybe afford to do that. It's a little bit more hit and miss. I'm in my 50s. I've got maybe 13, 15 summers left before I'm either being put in a box or I'm going to be farmed out into a weird home because I've been out in the street in my underpants again, shouting at people. And so the way I look at it is I'm running out of time. And so I've come to terms with the fact that for me, it's okay. it's a different thing i'm just going to pause for a moment and say if you're enjoying this talk please ensure that you get the notification that we have another one coming out so go to the show notes and please click the link to subscribe to our newsletter where you will get notifications of new podcasts but also lots of articles and data-driven insights about how you can emulate the success of dave and the other people that i've interviewed on this podcast i think that what we do is encourage everybody at every stage of their careers to actually think commercially because if you're in your 20s or 30s you probably want to make work all the time and you want to dedicate you don't want to have that job in a bar or whatever it is and just have to squeeze it around the paying the rent yeah. so it's always strange to me how the visual arts nobody talks about being commercial or like this sense that if you're too overtly commercial, or you're thinking commercially, it might impact negatively on your creativity, the purity of your creativity. Whereas, for example, if you take, I don't know, music, when people, I was gonna say, yeah. when people sell a lot, they get a gold disc and everyone claps and everyone's happy. And everyone likes, it's exactly the way to look at it. I mean, I don't think there's any difference between art, being an artist and being a musician, being a fashion designer, being a filmmaker. Being a filmmaker, you have to deal with Lots of people who have to buy, you know, who engage with your work and you have to deal with studios and actors and all that kind of shit. Being a musician, exactly the same. Being a fashion designer, exactly the same. Being an artist, you're still dealing with customers. You're still dealing with galleries. You're still dealing with an infrastructure. But the fact is, you're creating a product on your own. You're creating a product that people like and that people want. And when you do that, you should be rewarded for it. And I think there is absolutely no shame. And I think absolutely think of it like music it's exactly the same but you get some people like radiohead who are different musicians to take that or to one direction but at the end of the day it's about those people and what they like to do 
and the vibe that they create in the same way that Alexander McQueen is different to the bloke who created Stussy and the people who created Nike. They're all effectively doing the same thing. They've just got different ways of stringing it. And I would absolutely, that's one of the things, think like a business, think like you are a brand and then be fucking absolutely professional about everything that you do. Because for me, it's the best job I've ever had. The fact that I had to wait until I was 55 before I actually discovered what the best job I ever had. I just felt like a fraud before. I felt like I was lying to myself. I thought I was acting. I thought I was the struggle, the daily struggle of trying to get through the day being surrounded by shitheads and wankers who were all trying to fuck me over. And it just, I just found it exhausting. Whereas now, once you, I'm, I realize I'm more studio than I am boardroom. I don't like wearing collars. I like being covered in ink and I've found my place and I'm very happy to have found it. But I think for a lot of people, embrace what you are and but then be professional treat it like a business because it is a business if you do it right it can be a very good business and there's no shame in that absolutely and unless you're independently wealthy then you have you want to be doing it all the time you're gonna to have to find a way of paying for it and if people buy your work then you know they have it on their wall that it inspires them so i think with art you have to give people there has to be like a strategy to get people to buy into your work and to actually make that decision to purchase it yeah you have to stand for something as well in the same way that you will buy an iphone instead of a samsung for whatever reason you will buy a vw instead of a bmw for whatever reason we make decisions about the brands that we interact with you watch channel four as opposed to itv for whatever reason all of these things are driven by brand connection and brand values and the things that you want like-minded brands to be in your life and i think as an artist, same way that you do with music, same way that people are turning around and go, oh, I can't wait for the new Tarantino movie. Whatever it is, I know it's going to be good. And I think with artists, you have to be in that position where you stand for something or you mean something to people. The great thing about all the great artists that we could ever name, you could put all of their work in a room for a thousand other pieces of work by other people, and you'd be at a spot which one those people did. And that's a great discipline to be in, you know, to have when you're creating work. How do I stand out? How do I mean something to people? How do I create a brand connection or an emotional connection to my customers or to other people? I'm quite happy being pop music. I want my dream would be if everybody on earth bought one of my pieces of work, I'd be ecstatic. If they bought two, I'd be even happier. But to be honest, I want people to like my work. I'm not interested in people going, yeah, no, I don't care. I want people to like it. Yeah. And, and that's what drives me. In terms of like, we're talking about your brand as an artist and artists having a brand like for example your brand i see is 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 this sort of positive message running throughout it it's very upbeat and is your brand as an artist is that the aesthetics is it the message is it the medium or is it some kind of combination of the three yeah. and is it something you conscious think about or is it something that just emerges as you do it it's a combination of all three and it is something that when I first started doing it because screen printing and being an artist there is a lot of technical stuff in it and I didn't really know what I was doing I loved the process I loved the very analog nature of you know take getting and creating an image on a computer printing it out onto an acetate exposing that and then printing it there's something I love that but also for me screen printing there's something about it sort of reminds me of advertising in a way it's like mass production you know, i can make hundreds of these if i want to the thing with what's the question again you there was something yeah, so i was wondering if your brands just emerges over time or whether it's something you have you have to consciously think about yeah so learning all the technical stuff was a big challenge because but it is something that you can learn and you get better at it i think creating that brand thing and it was I remember there was a turning point for me, possessed by recycling and upcycling. I've always done it. Seeing something in the street and thinking, oh, that would make a really good, oh, I don't know, I'll just go and get it and do it, turn it into a clock or do something. So I've always had that in my DNA. With the screen printing, finding things like the maps and finding things like the pink were things that happened pretty much at the same time. How do I make it stand out, make it pink? Finding interesting things that are already highly emotive, like a map, you put a map on, an, in a, on a table in a full room, everybody within minutes will be looking at it, trying to work out where it is, what's the connection that they have. They're also beautiful bits of work and they're also completely obsolete because now I've got an annoying voice on my app, on a phone, telling me turn left, turn right, go up to the next lights and take the second exit. 
Whereas these things were created by real artists. They are completely pointless. You wouldn't, you know, you, you could probably remember your dad sitting in the howling wind outside on the A3 trying to get from Guildford to London thinking, how the fuck am I going to do this while the map's blowing around? It's impossible. But I think there's something beautiful about those things. And so for me to take those and then do something with them. But the turning point, I think, was art is very dry. A lot of art is very dry. And I came up with this phrase a while ago that I told somebody and they just laughed at me, said, you're an idiot, was lol art. And it was in the same way that pop art, it's like doing stuff that gets a reaction. I like making stuff that makes people laugh. And graffiti is often there to make people angry or to get people to do things. And whereas the stuff I like doing is just stuff that makes you feel good. But I know that if I ever do live, love, laugh, I'll hang myself. <laughs> you know, if I ever end up with a piece of work in Oliver Bonas, I would be really disappointed. And there's a lot of people who do that. And there's a lot of people who are very successful at doing that. So my thing is, OK, I want to make people laugh and I want to create a reaction, but I then have to do it in my own way. And that's the thing that creates the discipline of you go, I don't know. OK, so you use slang or you use stupid words or you use things that don't make any sense. And I like that kind of randomness of trying stuff that stops it making sense when you hear stories about david bowie writing lyrics by chopping them all up and sticking them all together again there's a kind of craziness that i just think is brilliant and he's he owns that and it's it's not pop music he's still massively successful he creates amazing music but he did it by applying a technique that broke it all up and i like doing that i like doing stuff that doesn't really make any sense and and then if it's pink or if it's on a map or if it's on some other bit of found ephemera, then it feels that like could be mine. Did you ever come up with an idea that you think I'd love to do that, but then you have to modify it in some way to fit with your brand, or do you just absolutely? God, yeah. yeah. Classic example was you look at the sort of Robert Indiana love, right? The famous love image, which yeah. is the greatest, probably that and I love New York. If I could have ever done two things in my life, that would be it. You look at it, everybody's done their version of it. Everybody's ripped it off. I was sitting there thinking, I'd really love to do something with love, but how do I do something that stands out, that's different to what everybody else is doing? And I stumbled upon this thing completely by fluke. Somebody showed me a picture of the tail end of a massive bomb that they saw at a flea market. I told him to get the bloke who had it on his stall. Let me buy it. I bought it, ended up being a meter and a half high, the tail section of a thousand pound bomb. I found after a long period of looking, I found the top end, which is the business end, which is the bit that's got all the nasty stuff in it. The only one I could find had cement in it, weighed a ton and was the kind of thing that they would strap to a Harrier jump jet in, in the eighties as ballast, as a weight thing. So that it was when it was flying on maneuvers, they would give an idea of roughly how heavy this bomb was. Um, I then turned it into this big eight and a half foot, I don't know whether it's a statue or a thing, but my mate to spray it gold, printed love on it. So it's just called Love Bomb, but it's just, it was a really interesting thing for me that so I don't want to do a print with love on it. I'd want to do something different and tell a little bit more of a story. So I made this great big bomb. I did loads of hand grenades as well that were quite cute and gold leaf and gold plated. And it was a nice thing to have in my head. I knew I was going to do something with love. I didn't know what it was going to be. But it, when it sits in the creative mind, it's always sitting there. And the way I look at it is you just, it's like having loads of flies on the inside of your head. And then suddenly when you see that bit of fruit that you think, oh, that's an opportunity, that fly will go to it and land on it. And you can then make it. And so having that sort of discipline, but also that looseness to try and find those things that I want to make a bomb with love on it. How do I make it look like it's mine? It's easy because I make pink, pink and gold and all that kind of stuff. Now, Last year, I had another idea to do a thing called Killing Me Softly, which was to rebuild an electric chair and in the seat have a pink seat at the base and a pink seat at the back and then a cap. And what it would do is it, when you sat in it, it would just massage your buttocks and your back. And I thought taking something like a, an old found object, which I do with maps and I do with bombs and all sorts of things, and then trying to apply something different to it could be quite good fun just couldn't make the fucking thing work because every time I said I'm going to get an electric chair the first reaction by everybody was like oh god really whereas when I talked about the bomb I don't know even though they effectively do the same thing they kill people and there's something really weird about the manufacturing of an object like a handgun or a bomb or an electric chair that's manufactured by people and there's a creative director going can you just 
slant the legs back a little bit and make it look a little bit nicer. You know, there's something really weird about that. But yeah. I just couldn't make the, the electric chair thing work. And maybe if I ever become famous one day, I might just do it. But at the minute, it, I don't want to do anything that makes people angry. And I think it's a very volatile thing. Yeah, that kind of something that you learn as a creative director in advertising, that you'd have all these ideas swirling around your head and you'd have to wait for the right client to go, that's right for you. And so yeah, you're kind absolutely. of doing that in a way yourself. You've got all these ideas swirling around and waiting for them to coalesce into something that sort of fits with what yeah. you're looking for. And sometimes you've got to do five bits of work. It's like chess. You've got to do five moves ahead. You've got to think about, I look at every single... There was a saying that we used to say in advertising, you're only as good as the last ad you made. And I, I would apply that to being an artist as well. You're only as good as the last piece of work you made. But thinking about what your career path or what your thing is, what is it you want to achieve? I don't really want to have, like I said, I'm late. I came to it late. I've got 13, 15 years left. I don't really have any ambitions to have a one-man show at the Tate Modern. But I know I like doing shows and I know I like doing lots of work. And so I've got a career plan, which is, Every time I do a piece of work, how do I get people to like it? How do I get people to buy it? How do I get gallery owners to look at it and think, this guy's good? How do I get conversations with other galleries to go, let's do a show? So that everything, one piece of work has to lead, has to create 10 opportunities. And the great thing about your earlier point about when you come up with ideas, when you work in the corporate world, when they get shut down, they never see the light of day again. You put them all in a drawer and think, I know what that idea with the cat and the dog who talk to each other and dance, I can use that for a multitude of things. More often than not, you won't be able to because so much creativity is like custom built around a concept or an issue that you have to try and resolve. Whereas with art, you can come up with all of these ideas and then just work out how far down the conveyor belt you're going to put that idea for you to make it. And, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work. I and mean, that's the great thing. I've come up with so many ideas. I think, oh, this is going to be amazing. And it <laughs> fucking absolute shit. And then other times you do something on, an, on a whim that you put together in 30 seconds and it's the, it's, it could be the best thing you've done that week. It's really odd. How do you know when something is going to be something you want to stick with and how quickly do you kill things and what kind of feedback do you take to to make that decision i ask and i talk to galleries a lot galleries take 50 to six sometimes even 60 percent of the money that they make from the sale and you've got to ask yourself okay if you're going to give somebody half the money you make sure they work for it and so i like to every year go and have a meeting with all the gallery owners and say let's talk about all the finances and talk about how the business has gone and what i need to stop doing what i need to do more of but then also every time I come up with, if I'm doing a show with somebody, absolutely share that work and listen to them and get feedback and take it on board and try and work out how you can get better. You've got to make sure that you can squeeze every bit of knowledge and every bit of insight out of what they do to enable you to become better at what you do. And it depends. Some people love to just operate on their own. Other people like to listen and need constant reaffirmation and conversation to help guide them and that's how i like to work you in your work in advertising you i guess one of the sort of principal things and you, you said this earlier was how do you cut through the noise how do you get attention for your work when whether it's a commercial ad piece or as an artist when there's so much other stuff out there and how do you get noticed and that's obviously something you've clearly achieved in your art career as well as your advertising career so what kind of strategies do you use for that as an artist as an example i remember when i was working at karma 2003 i was working with a guy called scott leonard and he said oh there's an anti-war march coming up we should do something and at the time there were a few marches that had happened and it was always really dry and po-faced and we knew exactly what people were going to do. They were going to do don't attack Iraq and their blood on my hands. And it was all going to be very po-faced and angry people from the home counties who were going to march down to London and complain about things because that's what they like to do. And I remember we sat down and we just started having a laugh with it. And we came up with this idea of uh, make tea not war. And it was Tony Blair with a teacup on his head, holding a Kalashnikov machine gun with the most stupid comment you could imagine. And we were quite, cautious about it because i remember at the time thinking but there's going to be a lot of people who are going to die here it's going to be a world this is going to be a quite a big war that's going to go on for quite a few months and that means lots of deaths and you don't want to be flippant 
and and disrespectful of the people who are going to die. But also, you have to have an opinion about whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. And when we the original idea was why go to war when you can go to Wales, which was just a bit <laughs> random. It just happens to be that Scott likes Wales, and so we settled on make tea not war. We printed a hundred of them. We put them on sticks. We Scott drove down to the march, handed them out to people. And I remember he just called me up in the morning and said, just go down the newsagent. And I remember it was on the front page of the Sunday Times and lots of the papers had it. And it was this sort of moment when I thought, fucking hell, hold on. You can do something that's quite pure and simple in its approach, but it can stand out. And that was complete fluke, complete luck. It easily could have disappeared off the face of the earth. But I think it was because it tried to do something different because it wasn't playing the same game as everybody else and doing really heartfelt and meaningful and quite dark and worthy messaging it was stupid and i look at marches now and i love looking at the posters that people do in marches because it feels like they've been released they can say whatever they want and they're really really clever really cute i remember my favorite one is i'm so mad i made a sign and it's not even commenting on what the march is but it's just i just love that the personality comes through and in a way that's what it felt like a moment for me because in advertising, we'd always try to be a brand that had a personality, the agency, but you weren't really allowed to. Whenever I did ads, you would always try and apply a personality of that brand to the work that you did. And as an artist, I think you have to do the same and, and work out what your personality is. If you're really straight and boring and you like colourful birds, then do that. But if you are a bit more of a challenger and you like to make a bit of noise and you like having a laugh, then make sure that personality comes from your work because then it makes it remarkably easy to do stuff because you're not trying too hard, you're not acting. And so just applying that kind of logic has been really useful. Always just try and challenge what you think everybody else is doing and you'll immediately stand out. It's like when we named St. Luke's, we could have named it like everybody else does it. But the minute you change the name of it, it's one of the most fundamental things that ever happened in that agency was not naming it the way that everybody else does. It was also the simplest thing we could have ever done. Yeah. It's like, a, it's like a, yeah, I guess it's the biggest statement you, you can make. A little, think a little bit and think, yeah. plan something ahead. What could I do that's going to stand out? There's lots of advice out there for artists, which is around strategies for like how often should you post on social networks? What should you be focusing on email? Should you do this? Should you do that? And some of it's important, but I think what you're saying is you've got to take it back to the idea first and then, okay being great at knowing when to post stuff and how often and making video and stuff like that that's all important all of that's also important because that is the channel that's the, the way you get it out there but if you don't actually have that personality and that and that sort of clear idea in the original sort of thing you're putting out there and is that kind of what you're saying there I think. absolutely absolutely but it's also when i worked in advertising when you said something when a client said something it cost them a fuck of a lot of money it would take them a year to make and it would cost them north of a million quid every time they did something just to put it on tv would cost them a million quid so when you suddenly go i've spent 10 million quid putting this thing together make sure it's important so then you have lots of very clever people all trying to put together something and you listen to a lot of people and you make sure that messaging is bang on right now the problem is social media is completely free everybody can do it i remember a guy coming in from facebook and he was telling us about instagram saying yeah this is how you put together the perfect post you only post at six in the morning or nine o'clock at night and then when you do your post have a clip one clear picture that's graphic and then leave a 12 line gap and then have all your hashtags and i thought Mate, that just, it's Grammarly. Grammarly has created a sea of people who are too thick to be able to learn anything. So what they do, Grammarly makes them seem intelligent, which is a cheat. So if all of a sudden I'm getting loads of Instagram posts from people that are all applying the same logic and the same rules and helping them apply it, be their optimum, it just means you've just created saturation of just everybody doing exactly the same thing. I think, again, be clear about your personality and make sure that your personality dictates everything you do. You know, you don't dress the way you dress because there's a format that Facebook have put out and telling you how to dress for success. You wouldn't do that. You dress the way you want to fucking dress. And I think having social media approach in exactly the same way is really valid. I'm mean, talking to a guy, Tom Bing, who is the founder of Byron, was talking about his Instagram feed and he was saying, it's, why is it so boring? And I said, mate, because... All you do is you make burgers. So what you do is you talk about burgers and you talk about milkshakes and you talk about chicken. Now, 
the way I use my social media is I think of it like when I worked at Channel 4 and I think of it like a TV station. So it's got drama, it's got sexy, it's got countdown, it's got the news. Channel 4 isn't one thing. It's about a thousand different things and that's what makes it a really interesting brand. So when I do my feed and I wouldn't by any stretch of the imagination say that what I do on my Instagram feed is good, but it works for me. And so sometimes I won't do a post for two days. Other days I'll do 12 posts in a day, depending on what's happening. I'll do everything from me commenting on things, me trying out stupid things, me eating things, me selling, talking about my work, talking about other people I know. So for me, it's about, I just want, when people look at my social feed, warts and all to know who the fuck I am. And that works for me. You know, what I was saying to Tom about the feed for Byron is, well, you talk about the chefs, talk about the inspiration for the sources, where it came from, the holiday that you went on that told you about that type of bread that you might want to use. Still talk about burgers, but talk about the fucking blokes and the girls who make the burgers and the story that they had. Let them contribute. Because when I walk into Byron, in the same way that when I walk into Wagamama, or I walk into Wimpy or Honest Burgers, they're all completely different experiences. And they're meant to be. They're meant to stand out. So make the thing that you do unique. Why the fuck would you engage with Apple instead of Samsung? Could be a million different reasons. Yeah. reasons. But it's like making sure that you have a clear plan as to what you're doing and why you talk in a certain way and why you dress in a certain way and why you do that work in a certain way. That's what people will find attractive. That's what people want from you is they want your personality. And so then use social media in the best way possible to get that personality across. And do you find that uh, because you do a lot of exhibitions, you do, you are active on social media as well. And you've your website as well as is, is you sell through your website. What do you think? Because I became aware of your work, I think through jealous gallery. who are great. You've been to a few shows with them and through print club as well. But then you've got your own store and then you've got your social media. What do you think contributes to your sales more? Or do you think you have to do all of those things? And how do you choose not to do certain things? Do you try things and then it doesn't work? So once you've got that message that you want to say, all the things you want to say, how do you know what channels to use and that kind of stuff? Yeah, it's a good question. So with sometimes going through a gallery is the right way. Sometimes selling it on your own is the right way of doing it. I think all of these things become more apparent as you get better and you become more experienced and as you start doing sales. You know, obviously, when you have that hard conversation with yourself about this is how much money I made last year, this is how much the galleries took off me, which is the same amount of money, it hurts. But also galleries are really useful. Galleries will help you with exposure. They'll help you with professionalism. They'll help you with attitude and the way that you run your business. You can learn a lot of galleries. And so I would never want to be in a position where I'm doing stuff without galleries. I really like the galleries I work with and we have a good relationship. But also I like doing stuff for myself. And I love doing things like collaborations. And sometimes when you do collabs, doesn't work putting it through a gallery because then you have to split everything three ways and you, you just become a bit of a charity and the collab will often start with two artists talking to each other and then the gallery just sells it and posts it and they're doing pretty well for doing not an awful lot so I think it just depends on the piece of work the work that you do and also what the opportunity is I love doing shows I love having shows and obviously that only works with galleries interestingly I'm renting a new studio in Hackney Wick, which is about twice as big as what I've got now, but I'm going to be sharing a space with another artist. So we've got the same space, but upstairs we've got a gallery, which somebody else will run. So it won't be real Hackney Dave or Dave Bonaguidi gallery. It'll be another gallery, but it means I can sell my work through that gallery and also put on shows. So it suddenly becomes another aspect of what you can do if you want to. But again, I think it's just think about it like a business, have a plan, have ambition about what you want to do, what you want to achieve, and then fucking do the graft and fucking do it. Yeah. We we sit there with our hands out hoping it's going to happen. It won't. You've just got to put a fucking shift in and get it done. Yeah. And I think it's easier these days to be able to do that, to be able to take control of your own career because there was this kind of thing, obviously pre-social media, where you'd have to really go and convince the gallery in the most part to, to show you work yeah and now if that avenue is not working for you you can just go and take control of it directly and go and reach your own audience yeah galleries are this is probably going to get me into trouble but they're like vultures <laughs> if, if they see a body in this that's still got meat on it they'll go down and get it so 
I remember working with quite a few galleries who wouldn't touch me with a fucking barge pole when I first started because I didn't have any work. Then when I started getting my social media story sorted out, when I started doing a little bit of advertising bullshit saying I've done this camp, I've done this new body of work, it's all sold out. Sometimes I never did that. But it's good to have a strategy as to whether it's fake it till you make it or brush it up and make it look a lot better than it is. And then once they start thinking, oh, hold on a second, I can make money out of this person. We could help each other. And then they'll get in touch and they'll come to you. But I think you have a right that don't bother going to any gallery unless you've got work to show, unless you've got sales on work to show. But you yeah. won't have to. If you get sales with work to show, you'll be fending them off because they'll come to you. And also, how important is it to know your target market? For example, with your work, do you think geographically there's a certain kind of market for you or demographically? Do you think about that a lot? Yeah, I do. It's easier for me in one respect because I do a lot of stuff like maps with New York is always a good idea. I know anybody who's been to New York and has felt it was a good idea would probably want to buy a print that says New York is always a good idea. So it, I can be quite, maybe it's been cynical, I don't know. But I love regurgitating these things. And I know that if you put an emotional message like let's go get lost together or is always a good idea or I fucking love this place onto a map that's relevant, people will buy it and when I do a lot of stuff I'll do an edition at the minute I've got an edition of called North South which is big London maps with North and South written across it and split by the river and if you're from London that's what it's all about if you're from North you'll want one with North on it if you've lived North or South you want a bit of both and I just think it's understanding what are the things that remind me of London and a big part of these things are driven by where I'm from and my parents are my dad's Italian my mum's Danish I don't feel English Danish or Italian I feel like this sort of slightly I'm floating in a sea of confusion but I'm from London and I love that thing of place and sense of belonging and sense of location and what we are but also language I love the thing of language that will completely change my kids are talking a completely different language than I did when I was their age and it was only 30 years ago and 40 years ago and there's something really funny about that that if you're of a certain age you and me probably how old are you 50 right okay so i'm a bit older than you we came from that same generation where there were those words there were those football chants there were those tv programs there was that music fashion whatever it is if i said shit kicker shoes you'd probably know what i was talking about if i said that to my kids they'd look at me with a blank face grange hill the sausage on a fork all of those things were kind of seminal moments and and so i love kind of playing with that and creating that emotional connection and when you do that and you make mm. certain cultural references then you kind of who that's going to appeal to right yeah completely you have a rough idea that there's going to be an audience of people that will like it but i fucked up as many times as i've succeeded with this sort of thing i know for a fact that if i do paris is always a good idea they'll sell pretty quickly if i do new york is always a good idea they'll sell pretty quickly New Orleans, maybe not so much. London, absolutely. If I do YI on maps of Newcastle or All Right You Cunt on maps of Glasgow, they'll go pretty good. And I did do a lovely All Right You Cunt on a big map of Glasgow in gold leaf. It looks beautiful. And it went within seconds of putting it on my site. But again, it's, I've got the numbers for me because often when I'm doing these things, they're like one off. So there's only, I'm not trying to sell an edition of 25 or 50. I've got three or one. And so the odds are in my favor a little bit. So that's quite important, isn't it? Like that scarcity in, in, cause you're printing on original maps, then by definition, you've got that scarcity. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I do additions. So the North South stuff, I've got probably about 25, 30 original maps that are beautiful that I'll be printing North South, North and South on and Southwest on a couple. But I've also done editions of, I've got an edition of 500 of North South, a scan of a map and then I've litho printed it. And you can do G-clays and all that kind of stuff. But obviously for me, the thing I love is those original maps that have got that texture and folds and stains. And when you get something like that, it's gold because mm. somebody else has defaced the beautiful thing anyway but i love that thing of finding something that's got a story to it i know no idea what that story is and it will go it'll be hopefully be quite a place in somebody's house rather than sitting in a box in an antique shop so how many exhibitions you could because you you know obviously one of your sort of core strategies is exhibitions right and how many mm. do you do a year roughly probably two or three 
Okay. I'll do fairs sometimes, which are quite good fun. It's really nice to do a little tabletop fair where you get to meet other art fair, and I do East Art Fair, which is a really nice one in Spitalfields. And it's just nice because you get, it's old school, you get a table or a little cabin, and you put your work and you might do a launch of a new edition, but you get to meet people who fucking like your work. Whereas when you're selling stuff in a gallery, you never get to meet anybody. And it's a sort of slightly padded version of the relationship. But meeting people who, meeting the people who like your work is a really nice thing. It's probably very narcissistic, but I don't know. I think there's something really nice about understanding who your audience is. And I often find it a little bit surprising because I think all artists start in the same place, which is you've got this drive and this yearning to make things that you want to do and that hopefully other people will like. And then when you get into that thing where, God, everybody, lots of people really like my work. And suddenly you get those people a bit like some of the people I work with in advertising. You suddenly go, hey, I'm like King Midas. Whatever I do is going to be amazing. And so then I start to not really worry about the people who buy my work anymore. And I just deal with the galleries and I'm too big to do a little tabletop fair. There is something beautiful about the kind of democracy of making good art available to all and not being too poncy and not being too much of a twat that's going to think I'm above all of this. And I, I just, I love those little East Art specifically just because it's in an old market where I used to, in Spitalfields Market when I used to live opposite. And I've, I've got an affinity with the market, but I think there's something really nice about fairs and shows that are celebrations of the work and celebrations of the people who like your work. And that's an amazing thing. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you find that people who buy your work through art fairs then become sort of collectors over a longer period of time? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always that thing in the back of everybody's mind, which is if I'm buying it for 50 quid, 80 quid, 200 quid, five grand, is it going to be worth something at some stage? And we've all been in situations where you've got a Ben Ein or you hear those stories about Banksy who's selling stuff for 20 quid and it's now worth 50 grand. So that's everybody's dream. But also I think there's something really nice about when you buy stuff, just buy it because you like it in the same way that you would do a pair of shoes, a throw, be a sofa, a film at the cinema. Buy it because you like it. If it ends up being worth something one day, good for you. But more often than not, and in a way, I think that's also the role of the artist is how do you make that piece of work feel more valuable? And it's if you're, a, if you're fun or if you're creating a lot of work or you're doing lots of shows, there's a kind of, there's an added value to that, which is people might think, oh, this person's going somewhere. I think I might, I follow them and there's a reaction and I met them and they're really nice to me and they were polite. And I don't know, I think it's just a bigger brand thing, which is... You can be distant and brilliantly creative. I prefer being, I like meeting people and talking to people and kissing dogs and just having fun. And it's because I, but it's also because I'm 58 and I don't feel like I've got time to be precious. I don't have, it was never in me anyway, but I don't have time. I love having fun making stuff. And I'm quite happy if somebody said to me, you've got another 15 years there and then you're going to drop dead. I'd be like, fucking mate, I'll take it. Yeah, it's really valuable actually having that face-to-face -face or even just like online interaction with people where I do it at, at the print space. I, I do the customer service quite regularly. And I that's where I learn the most about the business. And people say, I really like this, but I hate that. And, yeah. and it's great. And we should all listen to that. Yeah, you can sit up on high not it's that high you can sit up on high and you can say well i don't need to do that anymore but yeah that's definitely where you learn uh, it's such a great life such a brilliant life imagine if you ended up doing the thing that you love doing more than anything which is coming up with an idea making it and then meeting somebody who likes it even more than you and it wants to give you their money for it it's like it's orgasmic yeah amazing. <laughs> now if you've got so big-headed that you thought i don't need to meet that person anymore i'm quite happy with that i've done what i need to do and that's enough because i'm a superstar it's a bit like i don't know it just feels a little bit shallow and a bit empty i don't know i just think that every artist has got that child that nervous that slightly paranoid child inside them which is i've got this thing fucking pushing me to do stuff it even makes the hair on my arm stand up when i think about it because from an early age, from three, four, five years old, my mum kept all my sketchbooks. And that's all I ever did was just doodle and draw and make. And now I'm 58 and I'm still doing the same thing. It's genetic. There's something in me which made me do that. And all artists have that. All artists have that horrible paranoia that I'm no good and I'm going to be found out. But when I get it right and when it's good, I'm the fucking most important person in the world. It's that the highs and lows of being creative. Mm -hmm. And then to, and the terror of coming up with an edition, investing a load of money, 
of your own money in it and then hoping that somebody other people will buy it quickly because that would always be nice you yeah. don't have to sit around on shelves for two years and the, the, the sheer fucking panic of thinking god almighty i've just dropped 10 five grand 700 quid whatever it is into this piece of work and then it doesn't sell and it's oh my god every time i do a fair i'm sitting there thinking i hope it's good i hope it's good i hope it's good and then when it's bad you just go take a punch have a cry smoke a fag get on with the next one and when it's good you do exactly the same have a glass of wine don't get carried away with yourself do it again and it's just you just get into a routine and it's i don't know i think it's an amazing feeling and i think i'm so fortunate to be in that position where i can do that as my job compared to what i was doing before i was pulling my hair out every 20 minutes trying to it was like crossing the beach at omaha whereas now it's like everything is about flourishing and about being and about creating and it's an amazing thing to do yeah fantastic um, everybody i always like to finish off by saying is there two or three pieces of advice you would give to somebody starting out now who wants to emulate what you've done and make a career out of their art yeah i think it's do some homework don't just jump in be create a kind of format for how you want to achieve success or happiness or fulfillment whatever it is you're after work out what you're after but then do some homework find out do work out what you're good at what you're not good at stop doing what you're not good at and do more of what you're good at it's really keep it simple stupid it's real kiss stuff and then be professional do it on time turn up on time be polite it's all simple shit that i'd had grilled into me when I worked in advertising, but I think the most important thing is just do the fucking work, do the fucking work and just keep going because it's easy to get despondent. And I talk to a lot of people. I love helping mentoring and I do some stuff with a company called Wiser and where I talk to a lot of people who are similar to me, who are working in design or advertising or whatever it is. And they've got this thing on the side that they want to make their thing. And I have this conversation with them every time. And it's just never, ever give up. If you believe in it, do it. It's the most amazing feeling. You have got, you're running out of time. You get 80 summers if you're really lucky and just don't waste it. Just make sure that you're constantly doing it and having the most fun you can have. And then if by hard work and by organization and by fucking constantly banging the same door, that doorway opens and you end up doing something that changes your life, which is exactly what it did to me, then good for you, but you earn it. And I think it is, it's just about do the work, make sure you, it's, it's a cliche, but when you're doing art and you're doing what you love doing, it's no, there's no work involved. Mm. It's literally just fucking about all day long. You just get to do exactly what you want. But to get into that situation where you can pretty much do exactly what you want, you've just got to listen to a load of people and understand and bounce off them. And eventually you'll get on that route, which will take you to where you could be and then just fucking keep going. And stay off the crack. Stay off the crack. Stay off the drugs. Because <laughs> that's just a terrible distraction. I've never done any of that. But all of the smart people I've known that have been on that shit always fuck up. Yeah, it's usually when bands fuck up as well, isn't it? Yeah, when totally, totally, because they get carried away and they think, oh, all of a sudden I can do anything. I'll do a load of coke. Suddenly you're doing heroin and then you're on doing all sorts of nonsense and you're fucked. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks. I, I can't thank you. Thank you. Fantastic advice for, for anybody. And um yeah we look forward to uh, your next show which is in a few weeks time also if there's any if there's anybody that you get messages from people that want to talk about anything else that we've half covered mentoring is a big part of it giving them any advice understanding whether they need to kick up the arse or they need an arm around the shoulder or they need just some general good advice at every age we all need it and i just think it's really valuable and for me i had a lot of that when i worked in advertising but i had a lot of that when i worked when i got into the art side and there were fundamental moments in that meeting and that conversation and that moment that fundamentally affected my life. Mm -hmm. And if you are yearning to be an artist, it's a big step because we often end up doing something else to pay the bills. And it's possible. It's possible. You've just got to formulate a plan and then apply it. And then, like I said, don't give up. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And yeah, we'll definitely pass on your details to anyone who wants them. And thanks again, Dave. It's brilliant. Thank you. I hope you agree with me that this episode with Dave was packed full of advice and interesting insights into how to make your career as an artist. If you do agree, please subscribe right now to the podcast and share it with just one person who you think might benefit. Thanks again.